Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. So glad that you're here. And let me also add my encouragement to group link, especially for, for yeah, anybody in here that is not connected to a group. Uh, we as a church, we, we believe and want everyone uh, to, to walk together, no one to walk alone. And we believe that your faith, our faith, my faith, grows best when I am with others, when I'm loving them, speaking the truths of of Jesus to them, when we're serving each other. And so uh, if you're at all interested in jumping into a group, if if you want to learn more, I highly recommend joining us uh, this afternoon, group link. It's from five to seven at our Matthews campus. Now, I know that for, for many in this room, if it's not on your radar, it could be, oh, that's a quick turnaround. Um, and it is, but we definitely want you to know that there's still room. And so grab the QR code, go to our website, uh, talk to one of us afterwards if you're at all interested. Hey, my name is Nick Schreiber. I'm the care pastor here at New City. Um, it's always a, a privilege whenever I get to, to preach God's word to his people. Um, and we're going to be jumping back into our sermon series in those days. And so we're going to be in Judges chapters 7 and 8 this morning. So I encourage you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, if you have your phone with your Bible app, start to move, move there. It'll be good and helpful to have the text in front of us. I want you, want you to imagine with me this scene. The army of the enemy Midianite nation is spread across the breadth of a whole valley, about 135,000 fighters. And this enormous horde is described as being as thick as locusts. It's described as coming in on droves of camels too numerous to count, has already wreaked havoc on the land, has already reduced the Israelites to starvation and desperation. And what do you do if you're God's people in this moment? Well, you you cry for help. You go, help! And that's exactly what what God's people do. And the Lord raises up a weak, mighty man of valor named Gideon to be the Israelites' next judge, and the Lord is going to use him to rescue his people. But here's, here's a question I want to have us ponder this morning. Could there be an even worse danger than this enemy army? Could there be a more dangerous threat than the circumstances laying before them? And in our passage this morning, I believe that we'll see that there is a danger far worse that the Lord is more concerned about. And interestingly enough, this danger will not flow from the war that's about to be fought, but from the success that they're about to receive. Now, obviously, the Lord is concerned with the army and with the suffering of his people, and he's responding out of that concern. But the Lord is also acutely aware of the dangers that can come with success. And and amid an amazing, only God, supernatural victory that we're going to read about in our passage today, this idea, though, of a greater danger will be our theme. Uh, In Tim Keller's commentary on the book of Judges, he he makes this statement. I just, I want to throw it up here because I think it, it, it hits it. He says this, he says, there's a terrible spiritual danger involved in the receiving of any blessing. Success can easily cause us to forget God's grace because our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. Our hearts are desperate to believe that we can save ourselves. And that's what our sin, that's what our pride does. It it moves 
God, I can do this. I can do it on my own. I can save myself. And listen here, the most detrimental scenario is the one that leaves you or me thinking that we saved ourselves. And our bottom line this, this morning is this, the greatest danger in our success is forgetting that God is the source. And think about that. What, what happens if you forget that God is the source? Think about that, but, but I'm moving a little bit too far ahead because we need to look at the story. So if you would, let's have a stand. I'd love for us to read the first seven verses, even though we'll be moving into more. If you could stand, I would love to have us, have us spend this moment looking at the passage, and I'd love for you to follow along as I read. This is Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. So Gideon, verse 1, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The enemies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I'll test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. And one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only three of, 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. This is the word of the Lord to us today. You can be seated. Thank you. Now, this is a familiar story. It's a famous story. And even though these seven verses only cover the beginnings of the battle with the Midianites, it helps us get the story rolling. And and in this passage contains the key verse of the entire narrative. And I don't know if you saw it or not, but Judges chapter 7 verse 2 is the key. The Lord says to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Now, on first reading, you listen, you look at that and go, you have too many warriors, and you're, you, we should pause and go, wait, did I, did I hear that correctly? Did I read that right? I don't understand. This is absurd. If we're going to war against 135,000, I need as many as I can get, and these 32,000 are, are barely, barely what we got. What kind of battle strategy is it to reduce your army from 32,000 to 300, that's a reduction of 99%. So they're going to battle with 1% of what they had. What kind of battle strategy is that unless, unless there's a greater purpose above military victory? And what this is showing us is that the real battle, the real concern is not with, the, with, is not with meeting at all. The Lord can win a battle whether but with many warriors or by few. So what this is showing us is that God is concerned with their boasting. If I let all of you fight, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves. The ESV might read, Israel will boast against me. 
And any time that we boast in anything else beside God for our salvation, we are boasting against Him. We're robbing Him of glory. And the Lord knows that the pattern of human behavior is that if given the tiniest opportunity, you and I will boast in our own work. We will. And I, and I wonder if that resonates in your heart, if, if that resonates in your own, with your own experiences. I know it does for, for me how quickly pride comes. When I was a freshman in high school, I made the varsity baseball team. And one of my, my most vivid memories of pride happened because of one play. I was a freshman, I was a bench warmer, um, but, and we were playing a Friday afternoon game against the, the top team in our district. Um, and I got called in to pinch run because the catcher got a hit. And so bench warmer to pinch runner, and we'll see, we'll see this heroic effort here. But I, I was on third base. A little dribbler gets hit. A little, a little grounder gets hit between the pitcher and the third baseman. And I'm off the base, and I'm kind of stuck. And I have a choice. What do I do? Well, the pitcher grabs the ball, and he starts running directly at me. Well, I do this, this little move where I, I move one way, and then I move the other way, and the pitcher trips over his feet. He falls down, the ball rolls out of his glove, and I run and score to the applause of the people, the stadium, cheers. And man, in a moment, I went from a regular ho-hum Friday to man being on cloud nine, and for the rest of the weekend, nobody could take me down off of cloud nine. And I couldn't wait to get to school on Monday. I couldn't wait to get there to the more praise, more acclaim. I show up on Monday, nobody mentions it. <laughs> and that was the highlight of my whole sports career, was that one, <laughs> was that one play. We ended up losing too. <laughs> but pride can take control quickly. The moment after I step off the stage this morning, I better guard my heart, because look at what I did. But I think that you can relate too. You think about your success, your credentials, you think about that pre- the prestigious scholarship or, or promotion, you think about your bank account and how quickly pride can seep in. And don't even get us started talking about our families or our homes. And so you see the danger here, and pride leaves us boasting that we accomplished those things, that we accomplished these things, that we did it on our own, and the Lord knows this, and He begins to set the stage to protect against it. And how does He set the stage? Well, He he whittles down the size of the army so that the source of victory can be undoubtedly clear. And you see it in the text. He whittles it down. He says, hey, any, any of those who are afraid, send them home, which makes sense. You know, fear is contagious. And so in that moment, you see 12,000 people leave. They still have 10,000. You still have too many. And so the Lord tells Gideon to conduct the drink test. Hey, whoever whoever drinks with their heads in the water, send them away. Those who cup the the water in their hand, keep them. And so 300 remain. And the Lord tells Gideon this very specific phrase, with these 300 men, I will rescue and give you victory over the Midianites. Now, we don't have time today to discuss what's going on here with the drink test, but I will just say this. I think it would be, be wise to not read into the text some spiritual lesson that we don't know is really there. 
And I, I heard one commentator write this this week. He says this. He says, once we find ourselves asking the question why lapping or putting water like this in your, is, is a sign of a better soldier, we're probably on the wrong track. The point, the point of the 300 was that it was meant to be a group so inadequate that when the battle was won, it cannot be a case of Israel saying that we did this. The Lord wants this to be undoubtedly clear. The Lord wants to test, but also motivate Gideon's and his people's faith. You're 300 going up against 135,000. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And the scene makes me think of that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Just make a note of that in your notes if you're taking them. It says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. For the Lord knows that that when I know that I'm weak, then I'm strong because it will push me, it'll move me to rely on, to have to depend on God. Knowing my weakness is a setup for faith, but believing in my strength is a setup for pride. And so we may plead to the Lord to give us more soldiers, to give us more money, to give us an easier job, to give us an easier family, to take away that thorn in the flesh that we see Paul pray for. But just as in 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord is concerned with something so much deeper. I want you to know that my grace and my power is all that you need, that my power works best in weakness. But you wonder, and hopefully we see what the Lord's trying to teach Gideon, what he's trying to teach us, what he's trying to teach his soldiers, but when you're in it, you can imagine. Faith is easier said than done. I mean, how do you think the 300 are feeling right now? (laughs) How do you think Gideon is feeling right now? We don't really need too much imagination to know what Gideon must have felt like. I mean, if he already was scared, already needing tons of signs while he had the army, just imagine now. And there's this beautiful part of the story, though, in verses 9 through 15, where God, with wonderful thoughtfulness, knowing that Gideon is afraid, even, even when he doesn't necessarily ask for it, he works together one more sign to reassure Gideon's faith. Look at verses 9 through 11. It says, that night the Lord says, get up. Go down into the Midianite camp, for I've given you victory over them. But if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will greatly be encouraged. And then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took, took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. Gideon, I've given you victory, but if you're too afraid, go down with your servant and listen to what they're saying, and you'll be encouraged. And this is one of my favorite glimpses of God in this whole story, because the Lord is amazingly compassionate. One person wrote this, says, after the episodes with the fleece, which we covered last week, Gideon may well have felt that he dare not ask God for anything more. And the lovely touch in this passage is that God takes the initiative and comes to speak to Gideon. He meets the man of faith as his knees are knocking in order to minister his grace and encouragement to him. And how, much, how many times do we just so grateful for God that he knows all the fears in our heart and he comes to us, I, I'm, I'm, it's okay. I, I know that already. And I'm still choosing you. And so Gideon has this moment where there's this, this movement from fear to faith. And it's not that, it's not in this passage, we, this passage talks a lot about fears, but it's not that we ought not to have any fears but it's about the journey from those fears or even with those fears to faith. And what, what, moves, what moves us from fear to faith? 
Well, it's moments like this where you remember God's with you. When you get that fresh word of God to go, God is here. God knows me. He sees me. It's when you start to see and you know God is working. When you remember and spot the faithfulness of God around you, it's those things that move you from fear to faith. And and God graciously is doing that here for Gideon because what he does is he sends Gideon down to the enemy camp. God protects him and preserves him on that journey so he doesn't get spotted. And he happens to come across these two soldiers at the exact time that they're talking about a dream that God gave them the night before previous to this. And at that same time, they're talking, and the two Midianite soldiers determine, hey, you know what that dream means? Is that God has given us into Gideon's hands. And Pura and Gideon, they hear this, and they go, that's all we needed to know. What's interesting, though, if you look at verse 15, what's Gideon's response? Gideon hears the dream and its interpretation, and he bows down to worship before the Lord. It's this amazing picture of worship. And the Lord is once again showing us his grace to Gideon, his compassion, but he's also trying to make it very, very clear that this entire thing is God's story, that God deserves all the glory after this. And Gideon, Gideon's left in this place where he can do nothing but worship. You know, we at New City will define worship as worship is our response to God's revelation. And that's played out right here. You see Gideon see this revelation from God, this miracle from God, and he worships, he responds. And, and not only does he move him to worship, but it also moves him to act. And so you see in the remaining of chapter 7, the story of the battle, the story of what God does to bring the Midianite army down. And so what happens is Gideon goes, he readies the 300, he kind of divides them into three groups of 100, and he gives them a horn and he gives them a jar with a torch in it. And they head down to the edge of the, the Midianite camp. They spread out around them. It's about midnight. And then really upon Gideon's horn blast, the whole 300, they, they, they blow their horns. They break the jars that then reveals the light. And you can only imagine what's happening. The craziness that's there with the horns, the jars breaking. There's confusion. But don't miss this. If you look at verse 22... There's this amazing statement. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. And those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shittim near Zerahah and to the border of Abel Mahaloah near Tabath. So the Lord caused the warriors to fight against each other. The ESV says that the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade. So whose battle was this? Who did the fighting? The 300, they don't kill anybody. It's just their own soldiers are fighting against themselves. None of the soldiers could return home singing of what they had done, but only what the Lord had done as they watched. The battle of the 300 is a story about God. It's a true story that hopefully fuels our faith and fuels our worship. But the battle of the 300 is not the end of Gideon's story. And it's here where the story begins to take a turn. And in Judges chapter 8, which encompasses our last main section this morning, the story accelerates through four interactions that Gideon has with four different groups of people. And each response spirals downward and progressively reveals 
the, the, and exposes the pride that, that creeps into Gideon's heart. And while the story accelerates, you also feel, feel that the Lord is being left behind, and He is. There's a pastor named Andrew Bonner who wrote, wrote this. He warns this. He says, let us be just as watchful after the victory as before the battle. You see, there's a lulling that can happen when we've come through. After, we, can, we can drop our guard once we're on the other side of the battle, of the big project, after we've navigated that really intense season, and while we've endured up to that point, the enemy is just as ready, if not more ready, to pounce once we think that we're good. Now, to show us this in the events of chapter 8, I, I, I am going to have the story tell here, but, but I want us to walk through this chapter because it begins to reveal this progression. And it re- begins to reveal these dangers that are posed when success comes. And so the story goes like this. The battle of the 300 ends, and the Midianite army is decimated. And so it moves from about 135,000 down to about 15,000 people after the battle. And there are two, the Midianite two army generals are on the run, and the two Midianite kings are also on the run. And so what Gideon does is he calls the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is the largest, strongest tribe of that time. And he calls them to help. And he says, can you go help? Get Oreb and go get Zeb, the two army generals. And they do. They say, yes, we'll do it. And they go, they find him, and they kill them. But they come back with the, with the good news. We got them. But they come back also very angry. And this is what they accuse Gideon of. They say, why didn't you invite us to fight in the battle with you? Now, Gideon responds patiently with them. He kind of strokes their egos. He kind of helps them back down. But I think what Ephraim is doing here is Ephraim would have liked to be the hero. And they would have liked the spoils of war. And so what's happening is it's revealing exactly the the way what would happen um, and what God was trying to protect against. They wanted to be that, that group that would come in and save the day and boast. But this first interaction that we see in chapter 8 begins for Gideon this movement downward. Because next, Gideon and his army, the 300, they still have to go out and try to find the two kings. The two kings, king's name is Ziba and Zalmunna. We'll call them the, the two Zs, the two kings. And Gideon and his 300, they pursue them, but they're hungry, they're exhausted. So they go to the town of Succoth, the leaders, and say, Give us food. And the leaders refuse to help them because they're like, where are the two kings? Because they're afraid of what happens if you don't succeed here, Gideon. And they refuse, and Gideon gets angry. Now, I wish Gideon would have said to them, listen, God's told us he's going to help us. God's already told us that he's going to help us conquer, but he doesn't. He gets angry, he moves on to the next village, and he goes to Peniel. He asks them for help, and they say no. Say the same thing, he gets angry again. And he says, listen, I'm going to destroy your town. I'm going to punish you. And, and, he, and this is exactly what he does. And this is the moment that you start to see things take a turn for Gideon. Judges chapter 8 verse 16 says that he captures the two kings. He goes back to Succoth. He punishes them with thorns and briars from the wilderness. So punishes them publicly. He also goes to the town of Peniel and he kills all the men in that town. And so now he's punishing Israelites. He's killing and murdering Israelites 
in Gideon's anger, in, in his anger, you start to see this indication of the admiration that he expected to receive. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've just done? And you start to see this pride creep in. And, but jumping back in the story, so he's captured the two Zs, but he still needs to deal with them. And so he wants to enact justice, but he also wants to humiliate them, to embarrass them. And so he, he calls his young son forward and he says, hey, I want my son to kill you. Because in that day, if you were killed by a boy, if you were killed, it would be not an honorable death. But his son is afraid. His son doesn't want to kill them. And so, so the two Zs, the two kings, they, they say the worst thing that you can say to somebody who has fear and insecurities is part of their story. They say, they say, be a man, Gideon. You kill us. And so Gideon, without thinking, draws his sword and kills both of them. But in that, you start to see that although he has come a long way with his insecurities, they still, they still are there and they still lead him. But then there's this last interaction in chapter 8, this last, this last interaction that Gideon has, and this time it's with the Israelites. The dust is settled. He's conquered the Midianites. And the Israelites come to him and say, hey, we want to make you ruler. We want to make you king. And Gideon responds rightly. He says in verse 23, he says, I am not going to rule over you. God's going to rule over you, which is right on. I mean, that's the exact right thing, that he sounds good. It is good. But directly after he refuses the throne, you start to see him make decisions that prop himself up as king. And I just wonder, I do think this is a relevant statement for us, a relevant thought for us, because how often might we say, Jesus is our king, but then our actions, our obedience, our lives don't match it. And you see that here with Gideon. No, he's the ruler, but then he starts to make decisions that move him to become the ruler. So Gideon refuses the throne, but he makes one request. He says, hey, could you guys just all give me one, one earring that you took off the plunder of, our, of the enemy nation? And from that one request, he knows he's going to gather tons of spoil, and so he gathers upwards of 43 pounds of gold. And from the gold, he decides to make a sacred golden ephod and places it in his hometown. Now, an ephod, what is that? An ephod, is, it was this beautifully ornate garment worn by the high priest. Gideon was not a priest. And attached into that garment were these two stones that were called the Urim and Thummim. And, and priests would be able to pull them out and kind of treat them like dice, kind of like sacred moments of decision making. And the high priest would be able to use those and be able to, to, to use it to then to, to, to figure out ways to lead. And, and so he's, he makes this golden effort. And think about what he's doing here. He's, he's claiming not to be king, but he's positioning himself as priest and ruler. He's positioning himself and his hometown as a place for worship and now guidance. And he's living in his luxury. He's living off the spoils of war. And he's beckoning the people of Israel to come to his hometown, come to him for honor and for help. Because he has the ephah. He even names one of his sons Abimelech which actually means the father is king. A little subtle, maybe not so subtle, nod. But if you look at verse 27 of chapter 8, 
it captures well the weight of Gideon's choices, and it says, Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. It became a trap. Idols trap us, don't they? Idols keep you focused on, what is, on that which is lesser. It keeps you focused on that which you can control, that which can places power in your hands. And at the same time, idols, they pull us away from devotion and dependence on the true and the real God. And so Gideon, in the same town that he tore down the idols and the Asherah poles in the last chapter that we saw, he now constructs a new idol in its place. And the story seems eerily similar to, to Aaron and the golden calf. They just came out of seeing God rescue them from the Egyptians. Only God can do it. And they come and they say, you know what? Let's make a golden calf. And it traps Gideon's family. And they suffer the consequences. And actually, all of Judges chapter 9 is a story of the consequences and the ripple effect of what happens when you rebel and when you lead your family into sin. Because Abimelech, he kind of goes off the rail and starts to claim power for himself. And you see the cycle of what, when you start leading your family or start leading that way, what happens. And this is how the story of Gideon finishes. Judges chapter 8, verse 28. It says, that's the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered, the, the nation of Midian. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. But I do want you to know that it was a compromised peace. It was a peace without obedience. It, 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 there was a, and there's a tinge of irony in this last verse because even though they're no longer subdued by the Midianites, uh, they're still subdued. Gideon's still subdued by his lavish living, by his idolatry, and by his power. You may have heard it said that the ultimate test of a leader's character is not failure, but it's success. Success is intoxicating. It is. Success wants to reshape our boasting. And, and I wonder if you were handed full power, if you were handed fame, if you were handed wealth, how would you handle it? Gideon's story is one that moves him from a servant to a celebrity and somewhere along the way, he forgets God. His story doesn't end well. That alone should bring us a tinge of fear in us. If somebody say, hey, what scares you more? The, the, the situation right here in front of you or, or, or not finishing well? Like, I hope that for all of us, we say, no, I want to finish well. God, help me to finish well. Again, the greatest danger in our success is forgetting that God is the source. And so there could be there often is a more dangerous threat than the circumstances right before you, however bad or good they, they may be. And the threat is, hey, hey, don't lose your soul. Don't lose your heart. Finish well. And maybe the Lord has you here this morning to awaken you from slumber, to, to, to give you a little bit of caution. Maybe the Lord has you here to challenge who you're boasting in. Who are you boasting in? Who am I boasting in? It's not your salvation by your strength, but it's God's salvation by God's strength so that nobody can boast. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Apart from God's grace, I'm dead in my sin. So I wonder today as I close here, just, just a, another minute, I wonder today as I close, 
What, what can guard our, how can we guard ourselves from these dangers? How do we guard ourselves? And I would say to be watchful. Guard your heart. I'd say to be aware of the pride that can so easily come and, and don't live in it long. I mean, be able to spot it and you notice it and you try to cut it out. You repent, you confess, you bring it out into the light. Focus on the cross. Meditate on Jesus. When you think about the cross, hopefully if you meditate on the cross, you remember your sin that drove Jesus to the cross. So we need to guard our hearts. Grow in prayer. Hey, needy people pray, and we're all needy. And so go, God, help me grow in my prayer. Help me grow in my realization I need you in all things. And let me be a person of prayer. Keep me on my knees. Keep me abiding. Keep me enjoying you. And and pull others in. I think when you are able to be vulnerable with someone else, it it breeds other people going, hey, I'll be vulnerable too. I'll I'll, I'll share about my struggles and my weakness too. That's why we need community. I mean, talking about group link, that's why we need it. Because as we walk with each other, we remind each other of our need for Jesus. And so guard our hearts. Guard our hearts and may we continue to be watchful. Listen, we make lousy kings. The greatest danger in our success is forgetting that God is our source. And may we as a people today draw our heart back to him and may our boasting be in him and him alone. Hey, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this story. I thank you that, God, you... You're so clearly the savior, the rescuer, the, the deliverer here. But God, you've made that so clear in our own lives too. So may we not forget. May we not miss it. May we not go so far ahead of you that we forget all that you've done. So God, keep us humble. Keep us dependent. Keep us on our knees. And God, may you, may you make us a people who worship you, not, not again because of just the good things you give us, but because, God, you have saved us and rescued us from death. You brought us your son, Jesus, and you've given us grace. We love you. May you be glorified by all that's happened already and will happen today. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship?
Give God praise this morning. Man, 
so grateful that you guys are here, so grateful that you're, that you're with us this morning. Again, on the one hand, we go, God, you, it's all you. Only by your name is salvation ours. And, and at the same time, God, help guard us from remembering that it's not about us. Um, hey, this, this afternoon, please remember, if you're interested in Group Link, we'd love to have you come join us for it. And again, talk to us afterwards. Check it out on the website. Um, there's a few ways that you can respond this morning, though. The first is this, we as a church would love to pray for you and with you, and so you can put a prayer request on the connect card that's in the seat back, but also after the service, we're going to have uh, our care team members up here. Uh, they'll have a yellow lantern on. They'd love to pray with you if you have anything today that you'd want to pray for. you also see them around the campus. Also, we'd love for you, if you're new, stop by Connection Point. We want to meet you. We want to get to know you. Um, and also, if, if you want to give this morning, you can give online at newcd.us/give. Hey, if you would, extend your hands for this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and fill you with love, with joy, and peace this morning. Go in peace, New City.